Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you, as ever, by Vanishing Inc. My guest today co-owns Vanishing Inc, so put it into my contract that for every season of The Insider he had to appear every single time. So due to contractual obligations, here he is, Mr. Joshua J. Josh, how are you this morning? Contract fulfilled. Hi, <laughs> Damien. Good to be here. Lovely to see you. What are you up to? Um, I am just on a full day of press for my book. So um, this is coming at a great time because I have been talking all day and will continue talking all day about my book and stuff for it. But let me just take this opportunity to grab the microphone on the insider and say you do such a good job. Um, oh. I mean that. I It's such a weird treat to listen to our podcast on my own time and you just you're a great host and so i appreciate all you do and i know the listeners appreciate you too oh thank you that's very kind of you to say um as well as the book press stuff which we'll get onto momentarily there's a bit of prep for a small convention that you're organizing next week how's that going small being the key word this year (laughs) um yes uh yeah there's so much going on i just got back from europe i am getting ready for an appearance i am getting ready for magi fest and this book tour and so many other things but yes magi fest is happening september 16th to the 18th i imagine most of our listeners know that um we made the very difficult but i think the correct decision to limit attendance uh, significantly Mm. so instead of you know between a thousand and eleven hundred people we will have uh, a little less than 500 and that's all in and we have a requirement show proof of vaccine mm-hmm. and um you know it's it's going to be great i we're sort of leaning into the limitations that we have as big advantages like this is the year to come to magi fest if you want an intimate experience convention like this yeah. is the time when you're going to have a really easy time meeting and interacting with our huge array of talent and you're going to have really good seats and the visibility is going to be great and the dealer room is going to have enough of everything for once and and uh, it's going to be really um, good in those ways. I, of course, miss and lament the, the loss of, of the normal times, but um, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. No, it does bring advantages because sometimes, obviously, the, the sessioning at Magi Fest is, a, is second to none. But when you see that cool table you know, with with the guy that you want to, or lady that you want to meet, sat there holding court, and you just can't get close. This That's year, it. you've got more of a chance to actually meet your heroes, haven't you? That is exactly it. And I think that the sessioning in some ways will be better because it's a more intimate crowd and everybody will just kind of vibe together a little more. It's not going to feel mm. so intimidating and so, so off-putting when so many people are in one place. So, yeah, we're um, we're really excited about it. I can tell you that you know, in our ad copy, you know, we've been saying it's what we all need. It's what we all need. But I feel like it's what I need, too. You know, I mean, it's it's what truly we all need, which is a little bit of togetherness in, yeah. at this time. Yeah. What well, safety measures have you, apart from the, obviously, what must have been a difficult decision to require the proof, proof of vaccination, what other safety measures have you put in place for people? Yeah, so there's attending? a few things that we can go over. One of the things is, you know, because this is September and not January, we actually can be outside. And there's a really great area outside for people to hang out in and session in if they like. There are less chairs around each of the session tables in the dealer's room. Um, because we have this extra space, it means that we can space people out in the ballroom so that they're mm-hmm. not sitting right next to and on top of other people as in previous years 
So there's going to be that. There's more space in the dealer's room, so way more uh, ability to move around without feeling like you're next to anybody at all. Um, so those are just a few of the things. And then, of course, the fact that everybody there will have been vaccinated greatly reduces the the spread of, of any potential virus. Um, there's sure. also the hotels doing lots of things like um, hourly cleanings of the bathrooms and the uh, guardrails and public areas, so sanitation stations, lots of things. And have that, because of the changes in, in the, the numbers of attending attendees and all of that sort of stuff, has there been, and the whole safety aspect, have you had to make changes to the way the gala shows are operating as well? A little bit, yeah. But I mean, I think that the question you're sort of getting at that a lot of people want to know is the answer is no, we have not um, dwindled down the convention at all because of the loss of revenue or because of the loss of attendees. Like, in retrospect, I wish we knew two years ago that this convention would be 500 people because we hired the number of talent and events for a thousand person convention. And that's made it you know, difficult from a business standpoint, but the mm. great benefit that the people who come are going to experience is you're getting serious bang for your buck because this convention was initially planned to be, you know, in a post-pandemic world and we're just not quite there yet. Um, but yes, we've we've changed the strategy of some of the things that we're doing and the layout of the backstage area and the way that we're interacting with tech. But the shows and the lectures and the panels are all going to feel very much of the same quality and exceeding the quality of previous years. And you'll be able to see more easily. Yeah. Tell us about the um, the special lectures on um, on the Sunday, the workshops on the Sunday. Ah, Nate Staniforth and John Armstrong. So these are two two magicians that I have such respect for. Um, Nate Staniforth is somebody who I've never seen in person. I've followed his work. His book, Clouds and Kingdom, is, is a great favorite. And he's a soft-spoken guy, and he has really a great theory of magic. He's a strong writer. And I'm just really excited to spend that three hours with him in this workshop. We do workshops every Sunday. They're extra pay events, and we really limit attendance. And so it's like taking a private lesson from somebody. And then the other one is John Armstrong, who, of course made this great transition that we all saw from uh, a really renowned close-up magician to become a really great parlor magician. And so he works cruise ships and big events now, and he's on stage. And I think his workshop is going to focus on parlor magic, which is just really exciting to me. Super exciting. Um, Magi Fest aside, you did, you did uh, mention it at the beginning, but there's this little book thing you've got going on tell yes. us tell us tell us about the book what's what's going on there oh damien i'm so excited about this book and it just it's surreal to me that i can talk about it now because for the longest time it was shrouded in secrecy and then it got pushed back three different times because mm. of covid and everything else so the fact that i can just talk about it now is such a cathartic thing but um yes i have a book it's called how magicians think misdirection deception and why magic matters and this was the book I feel like I was born to write. This is the book I've always wanted to write. I'm sure I will write books later and I will be excited about them, but there is no conceivable way that I will be as excited as anything uh, that I am about this book. I mean, this book really is, has, I've been living with it so long and we try, you know, it was not an easy book to sell. It's a coming out not through Vanishing Ink, but through a major publisher, Workman Publishing was not an easy book to sell. And so for the longest time that I was writing and thinking about and pre-writing and outlining, 
I didn't know if the book would ever find a home. Right. Um, but I'm so glad it did. I'm so proud of how it came out, and uh, I'm so excited for all of you to get your hands on one. And during that outlining and preparation stage, tell us how, how that happens. Do, do, you've got have you got a literary agent that goes out and pitches yeah. it to you? So, exactly. so what what do you what do you give them to to give to the publishing companies? Right. So so before that, it starts with like, how does this kernel of an idea come about? Mm. And basically, I'd, I'd been gestating with an idea that I wanted to write a, a serious book on magic for the public. I wanted to right. write a book that lets us peer behind the curtain at what makes magicians tick. And then I read a couple of books that, that really changed the trajectory for me. One is How Music Works by David Byrne, a musician. And this is like his love letter to music. It was, it's really great because it doesn't, it's not for music lovers. It's not for musicians. It's for anybody. And it's a book that's kind of his testimony to what he loves about music. And it's right. how he made records. It's the things he loved about touring. It's how he wrote his biggest hit songs. It's his failures. It's his favorite musicians. It's a little bit of everything. It's, a, it's like a hard book to describe. And I wanted to write How Music Works for Magic. That's what I wanted to do. And that helped me crystallize my idea. The other book was a book called Seven Days in the Art World. And once again, I'm not an artist, I'm not an art dealer, I'm not an art auctioneer, but this book gives you seven metaphorical days in the art world. So I know that the artist or the author spent months and months and months researching and, and scouting out things for the book, but it's a metaphorical seven days. The first day is at an art auctioneering house. So you find out how the meat grinder of, of art auctions. And then the next day is in an artist's studio. She goes to Jeff Koons' studio and all these, you know, Damien Hirst's studio. And another day is uh, a museum curator's day in the life of. So by the end of this book, you have a really good sense of how the art world works. And again, I don't know much about the art world, but I'm fascinated by any craft done at a big level, at a, at a great mm. high level. And so that this book is my attempt to get us there uh, with magic. So you say it's a peek behind the curtain, but I assume that you're not getting into the realms of right. secrets and, and exposure. Yeah, that's right. Um, nothing is really exposed in terms of tricks. I mean, I, I, I speak frankly, and I don't shy away from method and, and some things that, that the reader needs to know about, but it's all in the service of gaining a deep appreciation for magic. You know, Damien, when I went to write this book, when I finally did sell it, I went to my friend Joe Posnanski, who's had several books on the Time's bestseller list, and he's just a beautiful writer. He's a sports writer, typically. And I said, what's your advice? I mean, I'm just feeling overwhelmed. I could, I could see myself spending five years writing in circles. And he said, here's what you do. Figure out what your core thesis is, your premise of your book. One sentence, and write that sentence on a piece of paper. And then tape it to your monitor. So mm -hmm. that every step of the process, when you're overwriting, when you're underwriting, when you've got writer's block, when it's all flowing beautifully, when you're doing interviews, you are staring at every sentence you write at that core premise. And my core premise was, I want to deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. That's it. That's what I want to do. Uh. I want to deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. And I think of it this way. Damien, if you and I didn't know each other and we just went to dinner... Mm -hmm. We could hear 
Elton John, Tiny Dancer playing on the radio, and we could have a great argument about what era was Elton John's best, if this is his best song, what his best work was. Yep. Then when we're done with that, we could look down at our pasta, and we could argue about what makes for great pasta, and where was the best pasta we ever had. And when we're done with that, we could talk about the best Star Wars films and the worst Star Wars films and what made each one why. In other words, neither of us make our livings in the culinary arts or mm-hmm. music yeah, or yeah. films, but we all yeah. have fluency in those areas. We can all recognize the difference. We may not all agree, but we all recognize objectively what makes for great music, art, film, food. I contend that lay people cannot discern the difference between great magic and bad magic. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they don't possess the skills, it's because they don't possess the experience. They don't yeah. possess the effort, um, the background to do it. And I would secondarily contend that not many magicians possess the magical fluency to talk critically. You know. I think a lot of magicians have great instincts. You know, if you've been performing your whole life, you can sort of go, oh, that's a great opener. Why is it a great opener? Well, mm. I don't know. It's hard to explain. And, you know, I mean, I've interviewed, and I know you have too, so many great magicians, and some are very reflective, but most are not. And most who have achieved greatness have achieved it in an intuitive way that they can't even themselves articulate. And that's a problem. You know, it's not a problem for them personally. If you're a great magician and you can't explain why you're great, that's fine. But it's a problem as a community because if we can't differentiate what makes great magic great, if we can't talk about what makes a structure of a magic trick really compelling versus really like a puzzle, then we are doomed to repeat the same failures and not be able to pass that knowledge on. Yeah, yeah, it's it's impossible to improve without that. Yeah. The other thing I think that we have in terms of Elton John and the pasta and whatever else, pasta, I can translate for you, um, is, is vocabulary. That we, we're not cooks and we're not musicians and yada, 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 but we can still, there, there are words that we know. We can talk about BPM or we could talk about chord structure or we could talk about the, yes, the, exactly. the, how much sauce there's in the pasta and how al dente it is, et cetera, et cetera. But we can't, normal people can't do that for magic, can they? That's right. They don't have the vocabulary. But even if they didn't have the vocabulary, there's just there's just not the understanding among most lay people that magic and magicians aren't all one and the same. You know, it's the old cliche that, that lots of magicians bring up, but it's true. If somebody goes to a bad concert, they don't say, God, I hate musicians. They just say, I didn't <laughs> care for Kelly Clarkson this time, you know. <laughs> But if you go to a bad magic show, it's completely common for people to say, I hate magicians. God, I hate magic mm-hmm. shows. And I hope that in some small way, this book, How Magicians Think, is going to play a role for the people who read it in saying, you know what? Not all magicians are cut from the same cloth. There is process behind a magic show. There is great depth and decision making and artistry that goes into all these decisions. And I'm going to be more sensitive to that as I watch The Next Magician. For the book, you shadowed some incredible people, Teller, Blaine, and Copperfield. What was that experience like? And what, what were you actually doing? What, explain what you mean when you say you shadowed them. Yeah, I mean, it was different in, in all cases. And, and then COVID played a role, you know, toward the end. The, the last edition was David Blaine, and that was already in COVID times. So 
That, unfortunately, was by phone. But in the case of David Blaine, like, I've spent a lot of time with him. He's from New York. I'm in New mm-hmm. York. I've spent time at his office. I've, I've worked with his team on things. So, you know, I bring some experience to bear there. And then I had three or four intense conversations. So to break them down, you know, I spent time with Teller, spent time with Copperfield, and with Blaine. Um, with Blaine... You know, all three, by the way, remarkable people. Each one, I'm very proud of those three chapters because I do think I capture the true essence of those people, not just the playing into their stereotypes. You know, I hope Mm. I demystify David Blaine in a way. But he's a tough one to demystify because he's the most mythic of all of them because he is that guy, you know. It's not to say he doesn't play a role when he's doing magic, that he doesn't have a character, but he really is an unusual fellow. And so... (laughs) when you're talking with him, you know, he really is that guy. And so he does say things that are just so wild and crazy that I have to shake my head and go, whoa, explain what you mean. Do you really mean that you would do that? Yes, I really mean I would do that. And so you'll read some things in the David Blaine section that that I think will truly shock you. And one of the things that I love is that he did not tell me that in the pandemic he was planning on this, um, this balloon special that he did with youtube where he jumped uh from a a set of balloons and then dived to safety uh with some with some skydiving and a parachute so the whole time we're doing this interview he's like talking to me and then he just the last time we talked he went all right it's great talking with you thanks for doing these interviews Uh, i gotta go jump out of a plane now (laughs) and that's how i ended the piece because it's true but my editor and so many readers were like i mean come on that's that's like stranger than fiction. That's not true. And I'm like, it is true. He was doing these interviews as he was training. And that, that's the real truth. Um, Teller is like my favorite magician in the world to talk to. Because Teller, maybe it's because he's interested in in the same things that I am in magic. And he really cares deeply. I mean, this 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 core promise of the book to deepen people's appreciation for magic, I kind of feel like is Penn and Teller's core promise to their mm. audience. So what's great about Teller is I can be on the phone with him for 30 seconds. He does not a guy who likes pleasantries. It's not a what what you up to, where are you traveling from. I mean, it's 30 seconds and we are talking about serious magic stuff. And yeah, we chatted for um, at length two, on two occasions. And um, he broke down for me several of my favorite Penn and Teller pieces, which are not the typical Penn and Teller pieces that you think about. And um one's cowboy rodeo and one's the vanishing elephant and and so there's some really weird pen and teller pieces that we talk about at length and you know he gives you the backstage view of how they develop these pieces and more importantly they he gives a very candid approach on how he collaborates with with pen and there was a very touching moment that that brought him to tears i mean it was really powerful and electric to be in the room at that moment but you know, there are these rumors around, and, and they're really harmful rumors I see now. That, you know, I'd always heard, you know, Penn and Teller aren't friends. They uh, mm. they just work together, but they're, they're not friends. I had heard that a million times, and I asked him about it. And he had a really loving, wonderful response, which you'll have to read in the book. But he dispels that notion completely, and he kind of puts it into the perfect metaphor of what Penn is to him. Which is really unique because I don't think most journalists have the guts to ask that question. I'm sure, no, no, I've never seen it. 
and then and then Copperfield, you know, was was just such a pleasure. I mean, this is my childhood idol. He's he's in a, a class by himself, and uh, Andy was actually present for the interview with Copperfield, and Copperfield conducted it on his private jet. So we were Bola. in Copperfield <laughs> Copperfield's jet. I'm asking him all these questions, and I got to ask him the question. I think everybody's afraid to ask him, but but has such an interesting answer, which is simply this. Why you have untold amounts of money, you've achieved so much in your career, why are you still doing 400 shows a year? Mm. What's going on here? What is happening in your psyche that you are pushing yourself to do this? And at first, you know, he gave the kind of canned answer that I'm sure a guy of his stature needs to give to protect himself. But Copperfield is a really extraordinary guy, and he he's a really thoughtful guy, and I kind of kept pressing him on it. And there was just at one point he got really reflective and he opened up and he told me what it was that drives him and pushes him. And you'll you'll read about that, too. And I was really proud of of that answer. I couldn't believe I, I pressed to get past the surface level stuff and, and really do it. So jealous. So jealous. Um, what's your writing process? Do you set aside x hours a day do you say i've got to do a two thousand words a day or do you just write when you fit tell, tell us about your process yeah it's a great question and i wish i had you know a daily writing rhythm in my life because i'd be such a better writer if i wrote every day of my life all the time like stephen king and, and these mm, great mm. writers do but i'm just pulled in too many directions let me tell you a few things that have helped me and i i can't i can't say whether they would help anybody else um I don't have any kind of daily writing quota, and I didn't write to any deadline. I, I picked a deadline with my agent that was very safe, so I never was, like, writing furiously to get to the deadline. I, I took it seriously from the start, and I turned it in early, actually. But the first thing I did was I overwrote by about 40%. I knew that there would be things that were inside baseball, that there were just too in the weeds for people. Uh, right. And I knew that I would be the last one to be able to decide what really was inside baseball so i left that to my editors uh at workman publishing and sure enough as always happens sometimes the things i was like i'm gonna write this but i'm pretty sure that only a magician would care and i got feedback like no no this is really good i think this is fascinating <laughs> and there were other times when i was so sure i was going to be fascinating about the neuroscience of magic and some of the studies that have been done and, you know, I got feedback like, hey, I'm sure this is very helpful if you're designing a magic show, but nobody's going to care about this. And I got to feel really good. I knew we were going to go for 52 chapters, so I submitted, you know, 75 chapters or so. So a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor. So that's one, overwriting. The other one is I tried to write as close to the situation as possible. So with both Teller and Copperfield, as an example we talked about, I wrote those pieces in, on the days immediately following my shadowing of those guys. Ah, so, so it was all fresh. I did not want, I recorded them so I could go back and pull quotes, but I did not like, okay, I got the interviews, I'll mm. do this in a couple of weeks. I wanted to do it right then and there when their words were spinning in my head. Sure. And then the last part of it is I always tried to think in narrative terms. So almost all the chapters in the book start by putting you right in the middle of the action so they all start with a story they all start with something happening and then they pull back and zoom out and we examine a topic i have a question who owns the 40 percent 
that was rejected? Do workmen I own do. it or you? I do. So what are you going to do with it, man? Uh, you know, first of all, I'm a big believer. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a big believer in editing down. So I would say to you that, like, I submitted 75 chapters, but, like, I don't contend that those 15 chapters that were cut are my best writing. In fact, I think okay. probably some of them should stay on the cutting room floor. What I will tell you is that there's a piece of writing in those 15 cut essays that is basically my manifesto, my um, roadmap to magical fluency. And what we determined very early on is like, wow, you're so in the weeds here. This is really fascinating, but this is way too much detail for a layperson. Mm -hmm. But it's basically my how-to guide on how I think we should critically watch a magic show. How right. a magician in particular can go to any magic show, close up or stage, and the things that they shouldn't be trapped by, whether it's difficult, whether they could see themselves doing it, whether it's practical, whether it fooled them. <laughs> And instead, follow the things that are really important. What's the aim of this performance? What's this performer's goal? Do they achieve it? Why have they made the decisions that they make? What character yeah. decisions have they made? All these questions that, look, some of us know, but most of us clearly don't know. And I think that someday, somehow, there's a booklet or essay or book in the, those chapters that could be, um, that could be, you know, fleshed out let's say so as part of the promotion for the book you're also doing a podcast so i've got competition in the magic podcast scene from my own boss i'm not happy about it but tell me about it yeah well actually uh you know i i have listened for different things when you do the podcast because i am learning and i'm I, I listen to some podcasts but not like some people that that's their, their life is listening to podcasts but yes, I have a podcast, How Magicians Think, and um, it's coming out through Audio Up, which is um, a really great podcasting company that hosts really big podcasters and, and great topics in a variety of ways. And they it's a limited podcast series, so we're going to do 12 and just sort of see how it feels for both of us. But we basically are bringing 12 of the chapters to life. Okay. So... I do a whole chapter on who is the greatest living magician, and it just might be Juan Tamarez, and so I interview Juan Tamarez. Um, I do a whole chapter on the science and magic, and I get Richard Wiseman and lots of scientific magicians, and we all have a great discussion about that. Um, we talk about the best magic movies, and I get Larry Fong and several others to weigh in on magic oh, and movies. Cool. And yeah, so it's been really fun to have these conversations, and um, I'm actually recording the very last of the intros today and then it'll all go to post and they'll edit it up and it comes out october 8th and i hope all of you friends of the insider will listen in it's like public friendly but i think even more geared toward magic fans and magicians and so on well if you're a good boy i'll put a link to it on uh, on the insiders oh, page yeah um and and there's a book tour when yeah. does that start uh, how many cities are you going to and what can people expect if they come out to see you? Yeah, and I think I can speak unofficially and just say that I'll be coming to your neck of the woods as well. <laughs> I think that when I'm over for the session in January, you know, provided things are significantly better and improved, and I hope they will be with the pandemic, um, I think I'll be doing a couple book events in London area. So, how exciting. Yeah. So anyway, the book tour is 35 cities. 
uh, and they are adding a few here and there as well. And so I'm coming to most major markets in the United States and I'll be doing local media, podcasts, television, radio, newspapers. And then each evening I'm doing an appearance. So it'll be at universities, at independent bookstores, at town halls, these kinds of places. I'm going to open with a 25-minute show with some of my favorite pieces. And then um, I'm interviewed. And then I do Q&A all on the book. So this is like a proper big book then, Josh, This is isn't like it? a scary, proper book and tour. Like, really... <laughs> And I mean, you know, I've, I've released other books, but they've been how-to guides to magic. This is yeah, like yeah. a proper, yeah, this is really daunting and exciting. That's super exciting. Uh, we're out of time, Joshua J. But as you know, we always end the show with four quick-fire questions. And they're yes. always the same, but you've already answered them. So what do we so do? We're going to do a new segment <gasps> called Four New Questions for Josh. Oh, I love four new questions for Josh. I'm sure it'll be very meaningful when it's not me doing the new segment. Well, it may only run for one episode. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll see how sure. it goes. Um, and I didn't put this in the Google Doc, so you don't even know what the questions are. Number one, favorite author? Norman MacLean, A River Runs Through It. Quick, I like that. Favorite Pixar movie? Ratatouille, and I can tell you why. You don't want to know why. No, it's quick fire questions, Josh, but as okay. you own the company, you're allowed to break the rules. <laughs> I, I get the same rules as everybody else. In one sentence, because I think it's one of the only Pixar films that isn't centered around violence or physical dominance of other people. It's, a, it's truly about a passion for cooking. Favorite place to get bagels in New York? Brooklyn Bagel Company. Who would you rather fight? One massive Marlowe or a hundred tiny Vernons? I think I think a hundred tiny Vernons because I consider myself more agile than sort of brute strength. And so I think I'd be able to dine and, and dive and dash more than, than like, you know, the power of a very powerful Marlowe might just squash me like a bug. Joshua J, thank you so much thank for taking you, time out of such a hectic schedule to speak to us. I really do appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm very excited for you and for everybody else to get this book. Me too. Bye now.